0: your spirit would you help us to hear understand believe and obey whatever you call us to do in jesus name amen, amen. please stand with me for the reading of god's word
1: psalm eight oh lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth you have set your glory above the heavens You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God.
0: Good morning, family of God. I am so excited to dig into Psalm 8 with you today. This is a very rich passage of scripture that has a lot to teach us. My sermon title is God's Majesty and Human Vocation. Because what is happening in this psalm is we are, on one hand, being called to fix our attention on God and reflect on how awesome God is. Isn't God awesome? We're called to focus on the majesty of the Lord. And then, with that in our minds, we're supposed to consider what is a human being? What does it mean to be human? What is our purpose? And the psalm has some deep, rich reflections on that theme for us. And these two aspects of the psalm, God's majesty and human vocation, they go together. Because the more we learn to worship God, the more we learn how to be fully and truly and deeply human. And the more we learn to live out our human vocation, the more our lifestyle becomes a lifestyle of worship. Now the text begins and ends with this statement about God's greatness. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then again, the text ends in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the phrase that frames this psalm and everything we should think about it. So let's say it together. Repeat after me. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's talk about what that means. Now, in English, it just sounds like it's saying the same word twice. O Lord, our Lord. But these are two different Hebrew words. The first one is the word that we can render Yahweh or Jehovah. Everybody say Yahweh. This is the name, the personal name that God revealed to His covenant people Israel. It's the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. You remember that moment? A sacred moment in the history of the world. God's people were enslaved they were struggling, they were hurting, and they were crying out to God, Rescue us, Lord. Remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God appeared to Moses and raised up this deliverer to set the people free. And he told them, My name that you will know me by, as your rescuing, saving, covenant-keeping God is Yahweh. So when it says, O oh, Yahweh, it's reminding us of this history. When we say Yahweh or Jehovah, we're remembering that God is a faithful God. God is a rescuing God. He's a God who sees His people in trouble and has mercy on them. But then it says, O Lord, our Lord. And this second time is translating a Hebrew word which means ruler. It means master. It means sovereign. So when you put them together, it's saying, God, You have been gracious to us. God, when we were in trouble, You rescued us. God, You heard our prayers. You kept... Your promises to us. And therefore, we are happy to bow the knee to you. We're happy to say you're the ruler and you're the king. We have served other masters who made us slaves, but not you. When we serve you, you make us free. And you notice it's not just saying, oh Lord, my Lord. This is a community affair. Worship is a communal activity. And it's the redeemed people of God saying, God is our master who are crying out together. So I need to ask somebody in here to testify this morning. Have you ever been in trouble and God helped you out? Anybody ever been in a really tight, tight, tight space you didn't know how you were going to get out of? And you called to the Lord and He rescued you. Let me ask this one. You ever did something stupid, and let's not just say stupid, let's say you did something bad. You sinned. And what you deserved was discipline, but instead you got blessing? That's called grace. Everybody say amazing grace. You ever been a sinner, slave to your own passions and Satan, and then Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins? This is all of our testimony. We have experienced God's grace, and now as a community we're saying, God rescued us, and now we're glad to bow to Him. Maybe we should ask this question. Have you ever learned from experience that if you live to serve anything besides God, including yourself, you'll be a slave? And then have you learned that when you finally yielded to God and obeyed him, that led to freedom? So that's what this text is saying. It's as a community, we are worshiping this God. Now I want you to notice, I just told you about the history of Israel. Then I asked you about your life experience, and they matched. So, church, let me get this straight. Are you telling me that the God of the Bible is the God of your real life? You saying this isn't theoretical? Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, it's real. The the Bible is real. It's not just telling us about the religious ideas that people had 3,000 years ago. What it's telling us is truth about the God who still reigns, who still saves, and still hears us. As a matter of fact, what it's doing is inviting us to join in a heavenly worship. Think about the fact that right now, all sorts of dead saints are not dead. They're alive with God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Miriam, Joshua and Rahab, David, Esther, Paul, Peter, Mary, all of our heroes from history, St. Augustine, St. Francis of Assisi, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dr. King, they're all with Christ right now. They're worshiping Him. They're bowing the knee to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're delighting in Jesus and praising Him. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power because He ransomed people from... God, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They're there with cherubim and seraphim and holy angels. And the psalm is saying that we as a people are saved by Jesus to be a worshiping community that joins in solidarity with those saints in heaven worshiping the one God. And when we worship Him like that, We're also bearing witness now to our future destiny to join Him in a new creation with people, a reconciled community from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, worshiping the Lord together. So there's a lot going on in those framing words. Let's say them together again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Now, let's pause and be real for a minute. Some of you, before you ever got to church today, were already excited about Jesus. You already spent time with Him this morning. You worship Him. You're excited to come worship Him in community. Others of you were not. You woke up feeling spiritually dry and tired, and yet you showed up here to worship God. That in itself is an act of worship. Every you turn, to your neighbor and say, "Good job." Most of y'all even knew it was going to be cold when you decided to come today. That's extra worship. And you made a decision to get here. And some of you already, your heart has been warmed a little bit. But others of you, even while I'm talking, you think John Mark seems passionate. and A few people are saying amen, but I don't feel it. I don't see God's majesty like they do. And this text can help us in two ways. First of all, let's come back again to that word our. Oh Lord, our Lord. Everybody say our Listen, Christian worship is a communal activity. And if you're here today saying your faith is strong, but mine is weak, well, then it's a good thing that you're here. So you can draw strength from your brothers. And next week, probably your faith is going to be strong and mine's going to be weak. So we need each other. Everybody say, we're in this together. But the other thing is that this psalm is here to train us about the fact that God is always majestic. He's always great. He's always showing his honor and his goodness to the ends of the earth, but we can't always see it. We get distracted. We lose focus. So the psalm is here to train us how to see God's majesty. And in the rest of the psalm, it teaches us something. When we get tired, when we get discouraged, when we have a hard time worshiping God, it tells us to do two things. And it goes back and forth between these two things in the psalm. Y'all say it with me. Everybody say, look up. Now everybody say, look down. First thing the psalm does is look up. You have set your glory above the heavens. What does that mean? It means I'm looking out at the stars. I'm looking at the sunrise and the sunset. And I'm seeing God's majestic creation. And I'm thinking, what power must lie behind that? I'm thinking, what a creative genius must have made all of that. It comes up again in verse 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist teaches us, look up, everybody say look up, and you see a big, vast beautiful, well-ordered creation, and it reminds you that there's a big, strong, wise, all-powerful God who created it, who filled the world with this beauty. And we've got more reasons to be in awe because we got the Hubble telescope today, right? So we can see pictures, and we know that the sun looks big, but that's just because we're close to it. But that's just one solar system and a galaxy filled with solar systems. And then the universe is filled with innumerable galaxies, I mean, God knows the number, we don't know. It's vast. And we've started learning more stuff about how that got formed and forces of gravity and quantum mechanics. And I try to read books about it and I don't even know what it's talking about, but it fills me with awe. I start feeling small, which is what happens in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? But listen, this isn't a sad, ashamed feeling of smallness. This isn't shameful humiliation. This is happy humility. Did you know that good humility makes you happy? Who likes to be humiliated? I don't like that. I don't like to look like a failure and feel dumb. But there's a different thing which is happening here, which is when you recognize all of a sudden, I'm not the center of the universe, and you feel good about it. You recognize I'm dependent, but I've got a dependable God. My problems are not the biggest problem in the universe, and there's a king who reigns over all of it who's going to solve all the problems. It's a happy humility. Now, first you look up, but then you look down. Everybody say, look down. Look at verse 2. Looks up at big stuff above, then looks down at small stuff, and specifically at babies. Verse 2. Out of the mouth and babies you have established strength. Let's pause right there for a second. I want to tell you about something that I found cool this week because I've been meditating on this psalm this week. At community group... We were reflecting on Pastor Chauncey's sermon from last week. And you, if you went to community group, you know that the first question we were asked to reflect on is what works of God cause you to marvel? What makes you feel amazed at God? You remember that question? If not, it's all right. Go to community group this week. It's a great question. And as we started to reflect on that question, the first two people to talk in my group were Ashley Abair and Candice Hart, my wife. And they both talked about the sunrise. And they told stories about feeling overwhelmed and stressed by all the problems around them and then going outside and seeing a beautiful sunrise. It was beautiful. It lifted their spirits. And then they thought about the God who reigns over sun and moon and stars. And they felt peace. It lifted them out of their troubles. And then the next two people to talk were... Victoria Gaskins and Reza Sam Cuddy. And they both talked about their babies. They talked about giving birth and then looking at their child and seeing this fragile, vulnerable, and yet beautiful life filled with so many possibilities and thought, God made this. This is a miracle and how they look at their children and are moved to worship. What they were saying is their own experience is looking up, And then looking down and being moved at the majesty of the God who created the world and reigns over it. So the God of the Bible is the God of real life. You hear what I'm saying? Everybody say, look up. Look down. But we need to finish verse 2 because there's something interesting happening here. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. What is that talking about? It's kind of a confusing little verse, isn't it? Here's here's what's clear. In this verse, there are enemies. There are bad guys. Question. Are there bad guys in the world today? Is there evil in the world? Are there people that are willing to trample the poor to dishonor the dignity of God's image bearers? Yeah, the Bible is real. The God of the Bible is the God of real life. There is evil in the world. But what it says here is, God has established strength to overcome the power of evil. And it says that God does it through babies? What's that mean? Here's what it means. You look up and you see the majesty and beauty of God and you think about His power. But if you really want to know God's power, look down. And what you'll see is that we serve a redeeming, rescuing God who loves to take small, weak people and do big, powerful things through them, like babies. God does this throughout history. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You remember the passage? He's talking to a group of Christians and he wants to encourage them, but he doesn't flatter them. He encourages them by teaching them happy humility. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 26. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. How would you like it if I came in here and started encouraging you that way? Look around. You aren't that smart. That's basically what Paul is saying. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He didn't say nobody. God saves rich people too. Isn't God awesome? He can save everybody. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's saying God wants us to know that the power is His. So God likes to take little, apparently weak people in order to do big, really powerful things. And if you study the history of the Bible or the history of the church, or just look around the world today, this is happening all over the place. Of course, the center of it was a certain little baby through whom God established strength to overcome evil. Y'all know his name. What's his name? Jesus. God defeats the power of evil ultimately not through the power of the sword or the tank, but the manger and the cross. Isn't that just like God? And then as we read through the history of the world, God takes a few fishermen and uses them to turn the Roman Empire upside down. I mean, last week, MLK Day was on our minds last Sunday and Chauncey, I heard, was singing and going off on fire here, and I was at Ebenezer Baptist Church, and we were celebrating the legacy of the civil rights movement and what God did. But think about this. How did it start? How did it start? I mean, it started with lots of faithful people praying and working over the course of decades. But if you're looking for a catalyzing incident, Miss Rosa Parks just didn't get up. She wasn't rich. She wasn't famous. She wasn't a pastor. She just refused to give up as a witness to human dignity. And look what God did. What we're saying is our God loves to take small, apparently weak people and do big, powerful things to overthrow evil and set people free. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that make you feel encouraged about our little baby church in this big, bad world? We can't even get the heater fixed, everything on back order. We're all struggling in here. But God is able. Everybody say, God is able. And then this, this pattern, look up and then look down, continues. We already read verse 3 through 4. When I look at the heavens, then I look down at humanity. Really, why does God care so much about humanity? Listen, what the psalm is saying is not that humans are insignificant. He's not, it's not saying that humans are unimportant. It's actually saying the op- opposite. If we keep reading, what it's saying is that humans are small, But look at the mystery of God's grace. God, we're small, we're vulnerable, we're dependent. But in your wisdom, you have made us awesome and powerful. You have given us a great vocation. And that leads to the middle of the psalm, where we're thinking about the majesty of God and how it flows out of our daily life, learning to live as human beings. And what the text is saying is this. At the same time, humans are very small, weak, and vulnerable. That's verses 3 and 4. And we're very important, powerful, and loved. That's verses 5 through 8. I don't want you to just take my word for it. Let's look at those verses again. Verses 5 through 8. It says, Yet you have made him, that is human human beings, humanity, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. That's an important word. You might want to circle that one. It says, God put a crown on the head of humanity. You got a crown. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, you got a crown. That's, that's You put a crown on the head of a king, right? Search for this Hebrew word in your Bible. You find stuff like Solomon's mama put a crown on his head. You got a crown like a king. You crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion. Now, you should circle that word, too. Everybody say dominion. That means authority. That means we're rulers. It said, it said we're small. We've been placed b- below the Elohim, below the heavenly beings. And yet we're crowned with glory and honor and we've been given dominion over all God's works. What it's actually saying is you're a little king and a little queen. That's what it means to be human. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What does this mean? It means, on one hand, you're little. Everybody say, we're little. But on the other hand, you're little kings and queens. You're little means you're dependent. You're a creature. You're not the creator. You're responsible to God. You're accountable. Real freedom, human freedom and authenticity starts with bowing the knee to King Jesus. Rebelling against Jesus does not lead to freedom. Amen. Anybody discovered that? But when we bow to the authority of King Jesus, now we become free. We're little and yet God has done for us something we couldn't have done for ourselves. He's given us authority and power as vice regents, as little kings reigning and exercising authority within his creation. Because if you look around the planet, human beings got a lot of power, don't we? He has given us this responsibility to be creative stewards. I use the word stewards because though we are referred to as kings and queens in the passage, we don't own this thing, right? A steward takes care of something that belongs to somebody else. And Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It doesn't belong to us, but we've been given authority. The psalm here is referring back to Genesis chapter 1. Some of y'all know these verses. Genesis 1, beginning of verse 27, says this. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So that's one of the most important verses about what it means to be human. Everybody say, the image of God. The image of God, He created him. Male and female. But then, verse 28 continues. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You Humans are little kings. What it's saying is, we are made in the image of God, which means we're made for relationship with God, we're made to hear God's word, we're here to pray to God and worship God, and we're made to reflect the goodness of God by participating in His work of creation, Remember, if you haven't read in a while, what happens in the first part of Genesis 1 is God creates the world, but it's covered with darkness and chaos. And then God in His wisdom moves into that chaos and starts cultivating order and beauty and filling the world with His life. And now we're called to be sub-creators or co-creators who exercise our God-given power and authority, our human potential, to fill the world with peace, with life, and with beauty. So, let me unpack that for just a second. What does this look like in your practical day-to-day life? This is incredibly practical. It's incredibly practical. You're called to be a vice-regent, a little king or queen, who exercises creative stewardship by doing three things. Everybody say, cultivate shalom. Cultivate Cultivate life. Cultivate life. Cultivate Cultivate beauty. Okay, what is this talking about? We cultivate shalom in the midst of chaos. That's what God did when he was creating the world in Genesis 1. How, how do you do that in day-to-day life? Let me just give you some examples. Sweeping the floor. Those of you that do not have small children do not know how much you do not have to sweep. Those of you with toddlers know, right? Right? I remember, I look back to a time in my life where you could sweep the house like three times a week and it'd be fine. But now it's like if you go more than 45 minutes, it's chaos everywhere, right? So sweeping the floor takes some chaos and turns it into shalom. Mowing the lawn. Anybody love that satisfaction when you look at it right after you're done? You can smell it. It's all the same height. feels good. That's satisfaction. That feeling is, I'm reflecting the image of God right now. I just made peace out of chaos. Brushing your teeth. That was a dental student. If you don't know why we're laughing right now, he just said amen. Changing a diaper. There's some stanky chaos coming out of those image bearers. (laughs) And God wants you to cultivate shalom. I thought of Jeff Garris painting a wall. Jeff, are you on the other side of this camera at your house right now? Gets all dirty and then a fresh coat of paint. Doesn't it feel like new? It's like new creation. Balancing a budget. Take something chaotic that could fall apart and make something stable and orderly. That's what Lori does for the Academy of Classical Christian Studies. Process management and systems engineering. I'm looking at Steph Bug, because she is not only the children's church director, but she's the person who made us just have the most organized staff meeting in the history of Christ Community Church last week. (laughs) Trying to make some order out of the chaos called the pastoral staff of Christ Community Church. Folding laundry. I'm, I'm mentioning small things right now, because what I'm trying to get you to see is that your vice regency, your dignity as an image bearer, is about making peace out of chaos in all kinds of little ways and big ways. I think it was Elizabeth Elliot who said, we express the image of God every time we run a brush through a tangled bit of hair. We're moving that from chaos to order. Isn't that a nice picture? When you understand that, you start to think about the fact that like all those little things add up to a lot. As a matter of fact, some of you will remember, Christ Community Church owns a little community center, up on 25th and Broadway. And we, that's where Hilltop Clinic is. That's where our pastoral offices are. We've had lots of stuff there. We had people living there for a while. All kinds of stuff has happened there. But when we first bought that building, we bought it from a plumbing company. And it took us a while to get around to painting. So for a long time, when you walked in to go to a pastoral office, there was a huge life size picture of a painting in the, in the entryway. I mean, excuse me, painting of a plumber in the entryway. Actually, it was more than life size, this was like an eight foot plumber. And it said, when you walked in, the plumber protects the health of the nation. Every time you walked into our offices. And I don't know how many people walked in and said, y'all should just change that to Jesus. Jesus protects the health of the nation. That was the joke everybody made. But the more I walked into that room, the more I thought, that is true. And I thank God for doctors and I thank God for nurses. I love medical professionals, but if you think about it, plumbers and the people who designed that have contributed more to the health and well-being of humanity even than our doctors and nurses. That's true. And what we're saying is small things can make a big difference, which means if you're cultivating peace on the earth, that always has dignity. You understand what I'm saying? That's why, speaking of MLK Day, that's why Dr. King said it so well when he said, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, some of y'all know this quote, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper. He did his job well. That's an important principle about life. Now, I've been talking about some small things, but this also scales up. Listen, friends, if you share the gospel with a neighbor, you, you can be the instrument that God uses to help a person have peace with God in a way that satisfies their soul for eternity. Isn't that awesome? If you listen to a friend who is sharing their burden, you can help them find peace in their souls. If you pray with somebody who's having a hard time, you can bring peace into their life. If you... Do advocacy work to stand up to somebody who's being oppressed and you're working to bring justice into the world so that the vulnerable can flourish. That's bringing shalom in a world full of chaos. If you encourage somebody who's downhearted and you don't know it, but they're hurting, they're falling into despair and they might do something destructive in their life, but you're there to encourage them and to be a friend, that's bringing shalom into a world marked by chaos. This is every aspect of our human lives in small ways and in big ways. Do you hear what I'm saying? What it's saying is, God has given you power to be peacemakers. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, you're going to have to use discernment. Either you're a little king or you're a little queen. You've got to pick which for your neighbor. Say it. Tell them right now. They need to hear. Some of y'all got confused. I just mean, just like if it's a woman, say you're a little queen. You got it. The thing is, you've been given authority. You've been given authority. And I want you to hear this. The work that we usually think of as spiritual is important, but also the work we usually think of as mundane or secular is important. And we can even go a little further and say, when we learn to think this way, when we're transformed by the renewal of our mind so that we're walking with faith and love and even the small things, the work we're used to thinking of as secular is spiritual. You hear what I'm saying? It can become sacred. Now, I don't have time to unpack in the same way the other two points that I said, but let's just talk about them briefly. I said cultivating shalom, cultivating life, cultivating beauty. You you exercise this dominion by cultivating life in a world marked by death. How do you do it? By preparing a meal to feed somebody. You do it by putting a Band-Aid and Neosporin on a child's cut. Think of how many people have died from infections in the history of the world. But you could save a life. First aid. We prayed for the medical personnel a little while ago. I know it's been stressful for y'all, but every time you start that IV or give that vaccine or whatever it is that you're doing, you're exercising dominion. You're expressing your identity as one who bears the image of God by cultivating life. Or a big way, like start a medical clinic to serve an under-resourced community. That work that Clarissa and Reed and others are doing every day. Again, we could talk about cultivating life in the midst of death by all the work that you're doing, serving in schools or serving in small ways. I mean, it breaks my heart every time I think about the fact that there's zip codes in South Oklahoma City and Northeast Oklahoma City where the life expectancy is 17 years shorter than zip codes in Northwest Oklahoma City. And a lot of that has to do with stuff that's happening in people's lives early on, those first 20 or 30 years. But when the church gets out there and rolls up our sleeves and makes a difference in lots of little small ways through mentoring and through, you know, being there for fatherless kids and through volunteering and through helping out with reading buddies and through all the different stuff that you're doing, you're cultivating life. You're exercising dominion in a way that honors God. You can do it by getting a vaccine. So you're less likely to make your neighbor sick. You can do it by recycling. Right? Let's take, let's steward this planet well. Let's take care of it. Hey guys, if you haven't noticed, humans, uh, through the rapid increase of industrialization and consumer economies and so on, we're throwing trash everywhere on the planet and it's causing problems, right? Your great-great-grandchildren will thank you if we get a little better at that, right? So what I'm saying is little small ways and big ways. How do we work to become a people that cultivates life? That shields vulnerable life. Or, how do we be people that cultivate beauty? That fill the world with beauty. How do you do that? Writing a poem. Painting a picture. Doing a dance. Singing a song. Taking pictures. Appreciate you, Charlie. We need to cultivate some beauty up on our website. <laughs> so Charlie's taking pictures here today. Volunteering perpetrating small acts of kindness, uttering heartfelt prayers to God, moral beauty, spiritual beauty matters. I hope you hear what I'm trying to say today. Everybody say, cultivate shalom. Everybody say, cultivate life. Everybody say, cultivate beauty. Now, if we look around at the world, we see these things happening all the time. And I would like to say, if, if you do those things, the work has intrinsic dignity, even if you do it with wrong motivations. The work has intrinsic dignity and value, no matter what your heart is. But I'm trying to also say something else. When we're transformed by the renewal of our mind so that we're thinking about what we're doing in the way that God thinks about it, so that I'm not just brushing my teeth and sweeping the floor and changing a diaper and volunteering and... Um, doing my job and balancing the budget, but I'm thinking, God, you love me enough to create me. Then you love me enough to come rescue me and die on the cross for my sins so that I could set free to exercise dominion to bring peace and life and beauty into the world for your glory. So I'm doing this out of love for you. Now it's true not only that this work has intrinsic dignity, but it has become worship. It has become a lifestyle of worship. When we learn to live this way, We're learning to live a way in which every minute, every second of every day becomes pregnant with sacred dignity. But when we look around the world, we can see that human beings are constantly succeeding and constantly failing at this. Why is there so much death in the first place? Why is there so much chaos in the world? Why is there so much ugliness? Why are we fighting all the time? Why are these enemies exploiting vulnerable people that need to be defended? Why do we have a hard time keeping our own relationships intact at home, even church folk? The answer is sin. The image of God has been marred by sin, which means if the future of peace and life and beauty in the world depends on us, we're in trouble. But there is one person in the history of the world, one human being who does this perfectly. Y'all know his name. What's his name? God became human. And when we look at Jesus, not only do we see God, but we see the picture of authentic humanity. As a matter of fact, he came so that our human dignity, which had been broken by sin, can be restored by grace. So we can become the people who know God and who walk in our calling. Let me show this to you. I'm almost done. I'm about to sit down again. But I want to show you that I'm not just making leaps here. This is in the Bible. Go to Hebrews chapter 2 if you've got your Bible. I'm almost done. But I've got to talk to you about Jesus. He's, here's the truth about God, about Jesus Christ. My sermon title is, The Majesty of God and Human Vocation. If you want to see the majesty of God most clearly revealed, you look at Jesus And if you want to see the human vocation perfectly fulfilled, you look at Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the place where these two themes come together perfectly. And in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews has been talking about the fact that Jesus, as the eternal word of the Father, has always existed. He's the creator of everything, and in that way, He's superior to all created beings, including angels. So he's talking about Jesus being greater than angels or than any other human being. And I'm going to pick up in verse 5. Listen to what we read. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. And then he quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What is it saying here? It's saying the ultimate fulfillment of the vision of human dignity we find in Psalm 8 is Jesus Christ. He, the eternal Son of God, became small, He became low. For a little while, the one who created the angels became lower than the angels, He humbled Himself clothed himself like a servant. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. But because of that, God has exalted him as king. And it says right here, on one hand, God has already put everything under the feet of Jesus. That's what Jesus says in the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. But on the other hand, we're waiting for the consummation of the kingdom of God when all things, including death itself, will be defeated by the victorious King Jesus. And the point here is that if we were waiting for human beings to faithfully fulfill this stewardship, to bring peace and life to the world, we would be in big trouble except for Jesus. But because Jesus has come, now all of us can get hooked up to Jesus Christ by faith. And if you trusted Jesus, you're in Christ. Now God's new creation has already come. The image of God is being restored in you. Your vocation is being healed right now. So that even as we wait for King Jesus to drive out all the death and the pain and the ugliness and chaos forever, when He comes back, we bear witness to that future hope by living today with this sacred dignity that by faith in Jesus Christ... Knowing I'm forgiven and loved by God, every day we as a community can walk forward caring for vulnerable people, bringing God's peace to places of chaos and pain, cultivating vulnerable life in the midst of dead, proclaiming the victory of King Jesus. And all the while we're singing, everybody repeat after me, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. That's what it means to be human means we learn to live like that all day, every day. And when we fail, we remember the grace of Jesus Christ and stand back up again. We're going to remind ourselves of that truth now as we come to take the Lord's Supper. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to say a prayer for us. Our Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for Jesus, your Son, who not only showed us your goodness and majesty, but also showed us what it means to be human. We thank you especially for the cross of Christ. God, we want to use the power that you've given us as human beings not to curse, but to bless. Not to destroy life, but to give life and sustain life. Not to bring chaos into our own lives or to other people, but to bring peace. So would you cleanse us? Would you forgive us? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that consciously embrace and internalize this vocation that you've given us to be little kings and little queens so that we can live in such a way that every moment and every day becomes an act of sacred worship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.